Welcome to Write Stuff Radio, where we showcase Christian authors worldwide. Each week, join me for a new author and a great new book to add to your library. Welcome to The Right Stuff. I'm the Queen Parker J. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, we'll be talking to my returning guest, co-host, and contributor today, J.L. Patterson. He is the author of his newest release, The Man Who Thought He Could Fly. It's available on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. I can't wait to delve into this in just a few moments. For those of you interested in keeping this ministry alive, feel free to go to patreon.com slash write stuff and see how you can help out. We have been showcasing Christian authors worldwide for the past nine years, and as God gives us grace, we'll continue to do so. And so, without further ado, I'm going to introduce my guest co-host and contributor today, J.L. Patterson. J.L., how are you doing today? I'm doing superb. How are you doing, Parker? I am doing fine. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being with me on the show again. For our listeners out there, JL was one of the authors who contributed to the life anthology we showcased recently for the pro-life movement called Life. And we had such a great time. I definitely enjoyed his story. And now he's back again. I can't wait to talk to him about his new release, The Man Who Thought He Could Fly. But before I do that, People may not know who you are, so go ahead and tell us about yourself. Thank you, Parker. Um, I'm just a, an author who's retired now from a normal day job. I like to write, I like to read, and I like to write stories that I can't find anywhere else. So, um, like they've always said, when, you're, when you want to uh, read a good story that you just can't find anywhere, go write it. And so that, that's my goal and my mission right now. So um, I wish I could spend and devote my time 24-7 to writing, but I still have a family to raise and things like that to do and take care of. But that, that's where I'm at right now. And apparently it's cruelty to tape your children to the wall and keep them there. <laughs> so I know you, you have to take care of them. <laughs> so you have right. to take care of them. Yeah, I totally understand. I write full-time now myself, so I understand having that desire to do that. But yeah, it'll come to you when you get a chance to. It'll come. But right now, like you said, you're raising your family. And you don't want books to interrupt those experiences. They simply, you know, continue to inspire your books. And that is one of the things that led to this book that we're going to talk about in a minute. But before I do that, I want people to know a little bit about what's been going on with you. You recently made a big move. Where did you go? Well, um, I finally uh, packed up and we moved from the great western state of Nevada down to the great state of Alabama. So that just occurred in the last few months. So here we are now. Um, we're still dealing with a lot of house issues and unpacking and all that stuff still. So it's obviously crimps into your writing time. But that's what we did. And that's where we moved. What's it like moving from a place of familiarity to the unknown? Well, I've done it three times now. So um, it's exciting. I, I like it. I mean, after a while, you get tired of being in a, in a place for 15, 20, 30 years. It's time to time to move some different uh, some different sights and sounds and cultures and food and all that kind of stuff so it's, it's exciting well that has 
answers my next question because I was going to ask how you cope with it, but for you, it's not coping at all. It's just jumping into the new adventure. Now, we first met when I read your story, The Island. That was several years ago, and I remember getting it in the mail. It took some time for me to read it, but I really enjoyed it. It's one of the first books I had that year. And so what has happened to your writing catalog since then? Um, that was actually the second book I wrote. My the first one was Saving Kennedy, so you got you know on the tail end. But I did I did you did get a hold of Saving Kennedy a year later. Um, so since the island, um, I I put together my my latest book, uh, The Man Who Thought He Could Fly, which is a collection of twelve tales, twelve short stories. So now I'm working on the next collection of short stories, which I already have a title for that book. It's called What Lurks Beneath. And so it's going to have a same variety of um, storytelling for, for those short stories as well. So it's going to be called What Lurks Beneath, and it's a tale similar to what you did with The Man Who Thought He Could Fly. Uh, correct. I don't know how many stories are going to be in it yet because I have more stories than I can put in it. So I'm not really sure which ones are going to go and in what order and stuff, but it's going to be another collection of stories. Yes. Now, when you look back over your writing from Stephen Kennedy to The Island to The Man Who Thought He Could Fly, do you think you've grown as a writer? Sure. In what ways has that happened? You, you find that it just becomes easier um, when you're starting out. Things are clunkier. You're, you're not sure how to even format your book to get it for print and for, for Kindle and, and e-publishing and stuff like that. You just learn how, how to write and format and structure things that you only learn by doing it over time. So I'd say that I, I can write a little bit faster, which is still slower than most authors, but faster than I did when I first started out. It's just simply keeping at it, I think, once you keep at it, and then it gets easier and easier with each book. Now, before we get into the man who thought he could fly, there's a rather tender-hearted reason about how this book came to be, and I would love for you to share that with our listeners. Well, the the intention... Was the book was going to be coming out. Um, I was putting together the book initially. Um, during that time, my youngest son had developed cancer, and I'm assuming that's what you're referring to. That uh, yes, yeah. so my youngest boy had uh, developed cancer, and it was uh, in his leg, and he had to have surgery to remove his leg, and he uh, he actually received a thing called rotation plasty. If you ever look it up, it's fascinating. It's where they because his, his the tumor in his his leg was up high, close to his pelvic region. So um, his options were limited to what they could do. They could put a cadaver bone in or a rod, um, but he'd never be able to lead much of a normal life with running and stuff like that. And then he'd have to have surgery down the road to replace it as he grew. The other option is just remove the leg completely. And then, you know, there's nothing to put a prosthetic to there because it's up so high, so he would always be on crutches. And the, the third option was rotation plasties, where they take the leg, and they turn it around completely backwards and use the knee joint. They place that into the pelvic region, and then the ankle joint is now the knee joint, but it's backwards. So then the prosthetic goes on to that portion for the remainder of the leg. So if you get a chance <laughs> sometimes, just, just look up rotation plasty. Um, it, it's, it's pretty fascinating surgery. And he had it uh, two years ago, actually, March. Two years ago, he had it done, and he's doing great now. And, of course, during all that time, he also had to go through chemotherapy. Um, so it was, it was a miserable time of my life, the worst time of my life ever. But what I did was, um, in bringing it back to this, the book, I found that while my wife was with him at the hospital for uh, weeks, 
now and then for a week on, week off, stuff like that uh, during chemotherapy. I found that um, throwing myself into these stories was really therapeutic because it got my mind off of the misery and and the the horror and trauma that we were going through with with our young child. So I really uh, put a lot of that time into that story writing. So for me, looking back on it, I can kind of, there's those little waypoints through this, the book where that's, I wrote it during that hard and raw time. And so it always, it always be special to me for that. Words are healing in their own right. And I can resonate with your situation in that I remember when my twin sister had cancer. So I know in some way what you feel. Of course, she wasn't my child, but she was my twin sister. And I remember when we were going through her trial with cancer and how difficult it was. And then uh, some of the things that happened during that period. So I definitely understand where you're coming from. And like I said, she wasn't my child, so I don't have the same pain, but I can definitely walk with you (laughs) down the path of that thing. So I'm glad that both of our loved ones are doing fine. So let's talk about the man who thought he could fly. How, you say you ascribe as an anthology, but that's really more of a generic term. I want you to be more specific. How would you describe the man who thought he could fly? Well, it's a collection of short stories that each story that I write in that book, you have to understand where my, my influence is growing up. I had a strong influence from Rod Serling. So for me, I, I think that it's hard for me to enjoy any story, whether it's a short story or, or, or a novel-length book that doesn't have an ending that catches me by surprise. Now, not every story has to have that kind of ending. I mean, there's great books out there that don't, but the ones that do, they make it worth reading. And like I've said this about even movies, you could have a great movie that you're riveted and thrilled and sitting on the edge of your seat watching the whole time and it ends bad. Does that not ruin the whole movie for you? Well, same with a book. Vice versa, you, you take a, a mediocre movie that you're trudging through. And I'll get, here's a great example. Great, let, me, let me take you back in time. Years and years and years and years ago, I had a friend of mine, and we had different tastes in movies and stuff like that. So in a local theater, this is when I was living in Florida, they were having, they had two movies playing. One was uh, Braveheart, which I had zero interest in watching, but he was all into that. And I was interested in, let's go see this other movie called The Usual Suspect. Kaiser still say, you know what I'm saying? So if you've ever seen the movie, okay. So long story short, when we were done watching both movies, I actually enjoyed both of them. They were very good. But The Usual Suspects, as an example, and I haven't seen that movie since the 90s when it came out, um, as, as I remembered, it was one of those movies that like, ho-hum, 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 ho-hum. And then you get to the ending and you go, whoa, that was a good end. And you, I've always remembered the movie because of the ending. Um, and, and the same way with The Twilight Zone, which, which Rod Serling created, which was my influence. So many, and not all of his, his not all of the Twilight Zone episodes um, were great. In fact, some of them were pretty, pretty bad. But um, the ones that were, were remarkable, and that's why that television show has stood the test of time, is because who can forget some of those stories? You know, and I have my, my few that, I, that are my, like my absolute favorite. And so when you have a story that has an ending you don't expect, then it, it makes all that time invested worth it. Now, let me be honest, I, I can't, it, just like with Rod Serling and, and the other writers on the Twilight Zone, you can't hit it out of the park every single time. So every story um, that you write, it, it's, it's difficult to keep the reader guessing and not seeing what's coming. A lot of astute readers, especially when they know your style, they know, okay, he's hiding something in this story. What is it I'm going to try to figure it out? 
And in fact, um, I do get people that um, reach out to me with, with this book and other books and say, you know, I, I saw the end. I knew the ending before it happened. And then they kind of get proud of themselves for being able to guess those things. So that's the best way I could sum up my book is a quote that I received from a reviewer that, that calls, calls me the, a 21st century Rod Serling, which I, I really appreciate that at humbling to be even compared to Rod Serling. And I get a lot of reviews that, that do liken that and my book to the Twilight Zone itself. So it's not just a collection of just stories randomly thrown together. They're, they they tell a tale. And the other thing that I want to do in, in each of those stories is they have to be entertaining. Because if you're, because just like with Rod Serling, he, he, um, each of the stories, and a lot of a lot of the stories, I should say, I can't say every single story, but a lot of the stories, they had a they had a moral message. They had some message they were getting across. In fact, um, one one of the great quotes from Rod Serling, and I'm, I'm I don't have it verbatim, but I'm going to shred it when I. But paraphrasing him, he says that you know he can he can have Martians in his stories say things that he could never have a Republican or Democrat say. And so that is fascinating because it's true. It's true. You can tell a story through the eyes and ears and experiences of a character that you could never just say. And so in those cases, you, even my stories, there's a, a lot of them, they have a message. However, my, my priority is never to sacrifice entertainment and quality for that message. Because oftentimes, a lot of writers will write the message in mind, and that's the primary reason they're writing. So the story suffers it's not engaging and it comes across as preachy and people are turned off by that. And I know that in some of my stories, I could cut that line close. I know that I do sometimes. And so I try to, when I go over it and edit it and edit, I try to whittle out that, that aspect of it so that regardless of what you think of the message at the end, you go, that was a good story. Regardless whether I agree with the message or not, that was a good story. So that's, that's more of the meat to what the, the collection in The Man Who Thought He Could Fly is about. I hope I answered that. You answered the question quite well, and I enjoyed the stories in The Man Who Could Fly. Some were more direct than others, and I can see how, depending on who you are, that may or may not turn you on or off, because you're writing in a particular style. You're writing like Rod Serling, and Rod Serling he was subtle in his messages sometimes, and then there were times he wasn't. Like the one that comes to mind that I really enjoyed was when darkness covered this town because of racism, and it could not get light. It would be 8 o'clock in the morning, and it would keep getting light, and then like this covering darkness was covering the earth because of racism and prejudice and discrimination. Another one that he did was about the Cuban missile crisis back in the day. That was a really good one because they had this camaraderie and then all this stuff started happening and everybody started telling the truth. And it's a timeless episode despite the fact it's in black and white. Then the other one that terrified me was uh, Talking Tina. That terrified me as a child. It's one of the reasons why I refuse to watch doll movies now. <laughs> so terrified me as a kid. And then, of course, my favorite one is two with Charles Bronson and Elizabeth Montgomery, who played in Bewitched, and Charles Bronson is Charles Bronson, you know. And that was my favorite one, very romantic. You know, I'm a romance chick, so love that one. So there's so many of Rod Sterling's stories that you remember. And the remake of Twilight Zone done by Jordan Peele, I actually like it. There is some inconsistencies with it, 
but it's his vision of the Twilight Zone, but he definitely tried to keep the format of it there. And then towards the finale of the first season, ended really well. It was like one of those, boom. He actually recreated Time Enough at Last, where the guy, it was a big bomb explosion, and he, he was like, oh, yeah, I can finally read it. His glasses broke at the end. He actually recreated that whole set in the finale and did some stuff. Yeah, there's some more modern takes to it that some people didn't particularly care for, but I can, I'm fine with it. You know, I'm fine with it. Actually, like I did a post about it. So I like talking about that. And it leads me into your story, The Man Who Thought He Could Fly, or your book, rather, The Man Who Thought He Could Fly. If I may interject, too, just to throw something else out there, too, and and, and especially when you're you're talking across multiple genres, because just like with The Twilight Zone, it wasn't the same genre. You talked, just mentioned Charles Bronson with the romance side of it, and then you have, you know, uh, scary ones with uh, the talking doll, Tina, you know, and you have different genres. Well, in the same way with collection like my book, they're not all the same genre. So it's it's harder to strike there because if people are genre-driven, like they are only interested in romance, well, if there's one or two romance stories in a collection or an anthology, they'll enjoy those, but they may not enjoy the rest. Um, and, and generationally speaking, I'll give you a great example. I just had um, someone review my book within the last month, and it's funny because they are one of the few that reached out to me and said they did not care for the very first story in the book, which is Killing Time. And I understand why, because everyone else who's really like that, and I've had other people reach out to me that's their favorite story in the book, there's a split down the generational line. If you recall in that book, everyone who enjoyed that story, that opening story, and really reached out to me and said, hey, that was, that was my favorite story in the book, they're of an older generation. This individual had reached out to me and said, I didn't care for that one. That was the one I didn't like. I didn't get into that one. Well, the reason is because this person, this individual was a lot younger. So they haven't experienced what the protagonist in that story has experienced with realizing that time is slipping away, which is a theme that was constant in the Twilight Zone. I mean, so many Twilight Zones dealt with aging and dying and and time slipping away in in the short period of time we have on Earth. So the older generation appreciates that story because they can relate. They can go, that is me. I am Solomon Grover. That guy is me. Whereas this younger person, I'm immortal. I'm living forever. So I I don't can't relate to that character. So it is a very difficult task to try to, in this, in this book, it's got 12 stories, to have 12 individual stories that are going to appeal to every single person. So I, I strive for that. That's why my goal is to write a good story. So even if this doesn't necessarily appeal to you, it's still well-written. It wasn't a waste of time. So it's, very, it's a very challenging thing to put together in a collection of short stories. But it pays off in the end. It's worth it. I definitely think it is worth it. and. My favorite story actually is the title of the book, The Man Who Thought He Could Fly. And there are many reasons why I enjoyed it, because you can take an obvious message from it, a more subtle message from it, and there's a strange hilarity behind it. And what I mean by hilarity, irony, this humorous irony. And I couldn't get past it. I was trying to figure out how to handle my feelings. Because there were times I laughed, even though it's really not a laughing story. So, yeah, we'll get to it in a minute because that's one of the ones I want to discuss with you. But we're going to get into three of the stories. Before I do that, I want to read an epigraph that you have at the beginning of the book. And at the beginning, it says this. Every society honors its live conformist and its dead troublemakers, Marshall McLuhan. And that's the epigraph at the beginning of the book. 
So why did this particular quote appeal to you the most as a warning as to what is to come when you read this collection of stories? Well, I think it's just a statement, a historical statement, because we always do. Anybody that stands out against the crowd is always demonized by society. And it's not till years, years later when that individual and his naysayers are dead and gone that we look back on it in history and go, that person was who you should be. And we teach our kids, you should be like that person. That person was a great individual. They stood up for their rights. They did the right thing. But here and now, those people are hated. Those people are demonized. And it's not until years down the road, decades, centuries, well, that they're looked upon and like, wow, they were right. But they never get that day in the sun. So I think that quote by Marshall McLuhan is, is so apropos right now for the society that we live in. I mean, and, and let's take the Canadian trucker situation that had happened recently up in Canada, which is a Canadian trucker. Um, they were demonized in the, in the media. And a lot of people that didn't understand, did, you know, they're bothering people because they're blocking streets and honking horns. Yet they're on the side, the right side of history that years later, you look like they were fighting a tyrannical government. They were fighting tyranny. And when it's happening, those people are hated. But in history, reflects positively on them. So that is exactly what that quote is saying, and that's why I think it's an important quote, one of my favorites. So without further ado, let's go ahead, and I've selected three of the stories in this 12-story collection. But I definitely want to give you, my dear listeners, an opportunity to enjoy this story and these stories for yourself. So go ahead, pick up J.L. Patterson's The Man Who Thought He Could Fly, available on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. So the first story we're going to talk about is called The Great Divorce. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read the intro because just like Rod Serling, you do have an intro that frames each narrative. So I'm going to read it. I can't sound like Rod Serling. He has a very distinctive sound. I can't sound like him. (laughs) So I'm going to go ahead and then we'll ask questions about it. The Great Divorce. The couple you're about to meet is having what will be their final conversation. Their relationship has dissolved beyond all reconciliation, and you have a front row seat to its epic conclusion. But do not approach this as a voyeur would, beholding this breakup merely for its salacious drama. Instead, take something from this, grow from it, and learn that sometimes the most healthy and liberating thing you can do in a destructive relationship is to walk away. So begins the story of the great divorce. Tell us who our main characters are in this narrative. You have Natalie and Freeman. Now, what is their problem with each other? Because as we're reading this story, we really do have a front row seat to their epic argument that they're having. So why are they having this argument in the first place? They have a, I would have to say there's a, difference of opinion in how their lives should be and there's a third party involved which and I can't I have to be very guarded and vague because if I give too much in this um, it'll give away the real story and you've read it so you know it's not what you think it is when you start reading it and if you're astute enough you, you figure it out sooner than other people some people it takes them to the last paragraph to figure it out but it it's about their lives, not – they have irrecon- irreconcilable differences in how they think they should live their lives. 
And so then, like I said, there's a third party involved, which complicates it even more. There's not a spoiler per se, but very early in their argument, you find out that Freeman had an affair. And this affair causes Natalie to be very upset. But again, it's not what it seems that it becomes very important. So I want to throw that in there for our listeners out there, because most of the time when you will hear this argument, you're like, oh, this cheating so-and-so. But actually, JL flipped it on his lid. I won't tell you how, but when you read this story, The Great Divorce, you'll definitely understand it. Now, as we watch the problem between Freeman and Natalie escapade, I noticed that there were bystanders silently watching. Now, was that a deliberate effect of the story? Because I found that curious. Well, yes and no. Um, they needed to be silent out of necessity because they're not involved in it and short stories you got to get to the point. You got to get what's going on. And there was no real need for everyone in the cafeteria or the cafe that was listening to this argument for them to be involved. But it is also it when you understand what the story is about, it does it does play into a reality aspect too. After I finished reading this particular story, I did find myself thinking it over, and that's why the question came to be because then you start to see layers to the narrative that wasn't there before. You kind of go, oh, okay, I get this. So what was your motivation with this particular story that led you to write it? It's the same motivation that I have for a lot of my stories. I have an idea. I have a, a concept or a message or something that I find that's vitally important. And to come out and just say, this is important, you're, you're split. You have 50% of people say, no, you're wrong. 50% say, you're right. I'm, I'm with you on that. So just like Rod Sterling did, you have to put your opinions and ideas into the form of storytelling. And that is how you're able to provide that to the reader. Again, you don't want to do it in a way that the storytelling itself is harmed because you're trying to pound a message and beat it in their head. Um, so you're not sounding preachy, but you are you're getting a good story, and then when you get to the end, when you put it down, if you're thinking about it afterwards, then I feel that's a great success. I want you to think about these stories after you put them down. And you do that effectively with a number of these stories in there. And it brings you to the next one, which I thought was probably one of your saddest ones in this story. It's called A Beautiful Day. And it's very normal. It starts off normal where you're like, okay, what exactly is going on? And then it ends. And you're like, really, JL, thank you for ripping my heart out. I didn't need it anyway. So, but that's a beautiful day. And I'll read the introduction to that. Submit it for your consideration. A typical mid 20th century family living in the heart of the city. At first glance, they appear like any other household, but behind closed doors, they're enduring the struggles of a family whose patriarch has fallen ill while outside their nation is at war. But even in the midst of illness and international conflict, beauty can often be found. From the spanning of a rainbow across a black sky, where just moments before a tornado touched down, to the singing of a sparrow perched outside the hospital window of a terminally ill patient, to the oft-ignored dandelion emerging from a crack in the sidewalk of a rundown section of the city. Yet beware, for even on the best days, surrounded by beauty, joy, and laughter, there is always an ominous storm swirling just on the horizon, ever reminding us of the ugly, because as long as we live in this world, there will always be those who seek to blot out the rainbows, 
silence the songbirds and crush the dandelions. And that is the intro to A Beautiful Day. Now, in this story, although it takes place in a particular city, wouldn't you say this could be happening at anywhere at any time? It transcends time, place, and location. Sure, absolutely it does. And um, that's, that's one of the more, I wouldn't say, I don't want to use the word controversial stories, but it's the one that a lot of people that would be right along with me on most of the stories in this book may be a little bit bristle at this one because history has told them to think about the subject in this story. They told, history has told them to think a certain way about this. And all I was merely trying to do in this is just peel back the years of education and history and textbook teaching that this is how we as Americans are supposed to think about this and tried to say, what if this was your family? Do you now think that this thing that took place was necessary or should have been done the way it was? That's all I'm trying to get to do in that, trying to get across in that story to make people think. Now, some people are never going to change their views and they will always say, you know, yeah, we were right, we were right, we were right. But there's always a human element to every action that is taken. And so that, for me, was one of those more controversial ones because I know some of the people that are that, that side with a lot of what I'm saying may not like that one as much. So it was, it was a gamble, it was a risk, but it was a story that I'm not going to hold back any punches. Well, at the same time, like you said, there is always the human element in all our decisions that we make. It could be something simple as saying good morning to someone or being mean to someone that you see. You think about those videos you see online where people act atrociously to someone else, and you kind of think, you don't know what that person is dealing with on that day. You have no idea if that's the right day for you to actually push a button and they lose it. So there's always the human element involved in every decision. It gets even more important when it's a corporation, an organization, a government who is making decisions that affects everyone. And so this story, even though it's written in the way that it's written, you can actually take the narrative and I would say stamp it on any situation where a mass number of people are affected by the decisions of the few. And that becomes why A Beautiful Day is probably one of the saddest stories there. And so it brings me to my next question because there is something very depressing about it. Could we ever escape from the silical nature of humanity? I would say apparently not because we continue to do it. We don't, we don't learn from history at all, apparently. And so what, what this, this story was set in the mid-20th century, and here we are dealing with the same problems that this family was dealing with at that point. So we, we don't. We don't learn from history, and that's, that's, that's the most unfortunate thing. And again, going back to the opening, the opening quote you read in the opening of the book um, by Marshall McLuhan, again, someone like me saying this is wrong, yeah, it's radical right now, and I should be chastised for it. But years down the road, you look back at that and go, he was right. But unfortunately, I'm not going to change many minds, as many as I'd like to, while I'm here. Then the one story that really had me going was The Man Who Thought He Could Fly, which is also the title of this anthology. So I'm going to go ahead and read the intro, and then we're going to go ahead and discuss this one as well. Submitted for your approval, one Paul Sheldon, a humble and quiet man 
who's worked as an accountant at the same desk, in the same cubicle, in the same office, in the same building for 19 years. But today his monotonous morning routine will drastically change in the most unexpected of ways and in the most unlikely of places. So that is the beginning intro to the man who thought he could fly. And as I was saying earlier throughout the broadcast, this one may be laugh and it shouldn't, but it's not a laughter of humor, but of irony. And it was probably for me the most bizarre because the message is very blunt and plain, but you're looking at people acting insane. And no matter what they said, there was insanity involved. And of course we know it's hyperbole that you're using this writing technique to make a point, but you can't help but see that in the real world that we exist in today. And so when you think about this story, it literally is what it says. The man thinks he can fly, and there is one man who says he can't fly, and he speaks the truth. And so it becomes the question of how does modern concepts of personal freedom affect reality? That's what it comes down to, in my opinion. But go ahead and expand on your own thoughts. Well, I, I think you stole some of my thunder there because that's uh, partially what I was going to say is that it's an insane story, yet it's a mirror of the insane society we're living in right now. I mean, if you go back 20 years ago, I was going to say, fifth go 20 and tell your grandparents that the things that you're seeing in the news right now and what's, what we're being told we're supposed to believe um, is pure insanity. So this story is taking that and it's and it's telling it in, in an allegorical tale that you may not even be able to see the forest for the trees around you with all the indoctrination that goes on on the news and, and entertainment stuff. And then you see a story like that and go, this is insane. Why would this guy? And then maybe at some point you click and you go, oh, I, I that was insane. And, my life, the world outside my window is insane. Now I get it. Because oftentimes, just coming on the nose with people, they may not accept what you're saying. Whereas you, you tell them in an allegorical tale or, or, or a great fiction story, their eyes and their ears open and they really get it. And it changes hearts and minds sometimes. And with the man who thought he could fly, throughout the entire story, I wanted to jump in and say, dude, you can't fly. You can't fly. This has nothing to do with anything else but the fact that you can't fly. And people in the story eventually force the protagonist, Paul Sheldon, to be quiet. The only thing I didn't understand in this story, I don't want to say understand, the only thing I wanted to get clarity on, I don't think this is a spoiler at all, is was he succumbing to the pressure for people to express their personal freedom or was he just silenced? That was something I didn't quite it as I read the end of the story. One of the aspects of the story that, that is important to know is that it's not just a story between two men, one who says he can fly and one who says he can't. There's a whole different angle in which there's a group, a mob, if you will, of people in this story that makes it more challenging for Paul, who's trying to explain to gentleman Roman, you cannot fly. And what Roman is planning on doing is going to end drastically for him if he continues to think he can fly, to think he's a bird and he can just fly. So Paul is actually the out of the group that's a sin. I don't know if at the end of the story when he 
gets back involved, gets back into the building, gets back where he starts, and you see how it kind of cyclically comes around again. The reader is left having to answer that question, whether Paul is going to object or whether Paul is going to just be quiet and not say anything this time. That is a question that each one of us has to answer based on that story being played out before us, based on any opinion you give that's not part of the official narrative, your whatever. Pick a name that you'll be labeled. Are you going to shrug your shoulders and go, too bad, I'm still going to stand on my principle, or are you going to acquiesce and just remain silent? And so that ends with the reader having to make that decision. I thought that was a good way of doing it. There's one thing I noticed that had he been by himself with the gentleman, with Roman, I almost think he could have made an effect on his decisions or at least helped him to see the break in his thoughts about him being able to fly. But the group kept interfering with that conversation. They kept silencing him. And he did fight back. Paul fought back. And every time they had an argument for why he should just be quiet, he had a counter-argument. And I almost think that was an apologetic that you used through fiction to help people, even in a subtle way through the vehicle fiction, to say, hey, sometimes you're going to get these type of responses. Here's a way for you to answer that question. So I found it almost as an apologetic story that was entertaining in the most bizarre way. That was truly, to me, the most Twilight Zone story in in this book because I could almost see Rod Serling doing this story because he didn't, he wasn't afraid to talk about things through fiction. One of the things that happened when his television show was that he wanted to control the stories because if he had to use the network and everyone else, they would take this out or put this in. One time he said he had to change a whole page of dialogue because the guy said, give me a match. And one of his sponsors had uh, a lighter had changed whole dialogue because that's how TV used to work back in the day. This story, which is a titular story of this anthology, is probably, in my opinion, the best one. But I'm sure to our listeners out there, you're going to find your story. You're going to find the one that's going to resonate with you the most. It may be a great divorce. It may be a beautiful day. It may even be the one story that I won't mention only because we don't have the time, but maybe the story, it may be the one called Majority Rules. And I won't tell you about that story. I won't tell you about that one. But if you read these stories, you're going to see different things are going to naturally appeal to you. So now I'm going to read the epigraph at the end of this book. Desperate times call for faithful men and not for careful men. The careful men come later and write the biographies of the faithful men, lauding them for their courage. Douglas Wilson. Some of these tales just are sad. When I read the epigraph, I said, wow. I feel better. What was your point in having this epigraph at the end of the collection? I think it was a, I think it was a bookend to Marshall McLuhan's epigraph in the beginning. I mean, they're essentially the same quote, just they're the same concept, just written differently, quoted differently. So that's that theme where delving into some of the ideas in this book are, are not popular in today's society, but they're still right nonetheless. And one day we shall look back and we shall see and we shall consider. So I want people to have an opportunity to connect with you. The easiest way to connect with me is just at my website, which is jlpatterson.com. And that's J L 
Pattison is P-A-T-T-I-S-O-N.com. Um, I have a small presence on the social media platform Mind and a small presence on Gab. There's not a lot of writing community on there that like there was or like there was when I was on Facebook. Um, I'm no longer on Facebook. I've gotten rid of that. But so I have a small little footprint in there. But your your best opportunity to stay connected with me is to go to my website, click on the contact tab, and you'll see where you can sign up for my newsletter. And I write one or two newsletters a month and try to just fill you with a bunch of great information and news and updates and all. I try to make them as interesting as possible. JL, thank you so much for being with me on the show today as I enjoyed having you. Love having your thought-provoking stories as well as your insights onto the narratives of the day challenge us to not just accept things at face value. Now, in the few moments we have left, as you know, JL, this show is always about encouraging authors whom God has given the gift to write to pick up the pen and do so. One of the reasons why I like to have you on is because you're writing from a particular standpoint, and there are others who may have the same ideas that you have. They may want to tell the stories differently. Encourage them out there not to be silent in their message because it may affect just one person, and that one person can affect an entire nation. Go ahead and encourage that author out there today. Well, I would just say write your convictions, write your heart, don't write to the market. You may not sell a lot of books, but you're doing the right thing. Write what you know you need to write and what you want to write. Do not pull any punches. Don't try to change things because you don't feel that it will be accepted by um, a wider audience. Just write what you feel is what you need to write and, and go for it because it won't be long before what you want to write may be illegal in this country. And, and it's not even a matter of if, it's a matter of when at this point. It's clearly we're going in that direction where your ideals, your Christian faith, uh, whatever it is that, that is against or in a, is in opposition to what the rest of the world wants is going to be deplatformed, censored, and downright criminalized. So start now. Don't, don't wait any longer. It, the, days are, the days are getting shorter. Time is, time is not on our side. So we need to act now. Dale, thank you so much for being with me today on the show. I can't wait to have you back and have you back real soon. Pleasure was all mine. And we were talking today to J.L. Pakistan. He is the author of the anthology work, The Man Who Thought He Could Fly, which is available on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. So make sure you go ahead and pick up your copy today. What I really loved about this book is the varied stories that are embedded into this story. And they're all different genres. Some of them are more subtle than others. Some are more direct, but they're all quite enjoyable. J.L. Patterson's style is to be direct, but he also has a very lyrical way of expressing these things. For one thing, you're actually involved into the narrative. You can smell the wind. You can be part of the dandelions coming out of the sidewalk. You can be in the cafe, smell the coffee, hear the people murmuring all around you, see the argument. You're in the barn watching this fantastical element of animals having a vote, a session, a committee, you're there because JL really knows how to work with words. One thing he encouraged you to do, he said, don't worry about writing to market. If this is what you want to do, you want to share your thoughts, write the message that God has for you. Don't worry about anything else. Just go ahead, pick up the pen and write stuff. Thank you so much for joining me for this edition of The Right Stuff. I'm the Queen Parker J. And you have a wonderful 
absolutely glorious, blessed day.